Let's turn to Romans 1 tonight, please. This is Better Call Paul, and it's the 19th time we're looking at it, which means it's my 19th nervous breakdown. All right, let's take a couple moments. That's the Rolling Stones, incidentally. Let's take a few moments of silent prayer. I'm trying to get into gear here in 2017. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will teach us in this coming year and tonight also both the immensity and the immediacy of the so great salvation that you have enacted in your Son and by your Spirit. And may the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be glorified in our midst, in our message, and in the gospel as it is freed from the chains of traditional and conventional interpretations. For we know that when that gospel is unchained, people who are captives to a gospel of deserving are set free into a life filled with Christ, a life participating with his own living, sharing in his own suffering, and hopeful of his own glory. We thank you for this opportunity now in this assembly and for each one who's come here tonight and chosen, made the option to come here. We ask that your richest blessing will come to each one, and that would be the granting of insight. And so may our lives and our souls be filled with the light of insight into this so abundant life that we have in Christ Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. I want to start by beginning to fan out in something I mentioned on the New Year's Day message. And it's a word study. We sort of crossed over from 2016 to 2017 with several different things, including a word study. And this is the word. It's para didomi. The word in the Greek, ditto me means to give, para means many things, but it means primarily to give over. In fact, in depending on the context, it can mean to deliver up. And it's even used to describe what Judas did in handing over Jesus Christ. So it can mean betrayal. It can also have to do with the handing off or handing over of tradition. Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 11. He said, that which I have received from the Lord, that's paralambano, I hand it off to you, paradidomi. But what we're faced with in Romans, as we've been seeing, is two absolutely contradictory gospel accounts. In Romans 1 through 4, Paul exposes a false gospel. In Romans 5 through 8, Paul gives his gospel unchained, in which we see in Romans 5 the immensity of the salvation that is offered and given and enacted by God in Christ and by the Spirit, the immensity of it, for as one man's disobedience led to all becoming condemned, one man's obedience led to all being justified. And that's another word we have to be very careful about. Justified, and there's a whole group of these words in the Greek 
of Romans and Galatians, the Dikaio group. And the word comes from the word, the Greek word Dikaiosune, which means righteousness. But in the context, as we have seen, and this is important that I keep repeating this, because in Psalm 98, the righteousness of God is what Paul is referring to. He's alluding to Psalm 98. It is an act of God that is right. It is the act of God, the king, in rescuing his people. And because God acts and initiates and fulfills that act of rescue, his salvific act toward mankind is unconditional. And this is what the most controversial part of the unchained gospel is that faith is not, in Paul's gospel, the means of appropriating salvation or that rescue or that deliverance from God. But faith becomes really two things. It becomes a post-salvation cognitive clarification. It becomes a clarification of beliefs. Paul's gospel is a retrospective thing. He does not speak prospectively. He doesn't make Romans 1 go prospectively into Romans 5. He, he asserts that the only way we can know how bad off we were in Adam is by a retrospective view from being in Christ. And so there's really nothing that we can do to appropriate salvation. Now, we used to use the word positive signals, that God recognizes positive signals. But the as we've learned, and this is really penetrating lately into my mind, but Paul said, when God was pleased, he revealed his son to me. And Paul was doing anything at that time. God said, in the triune God said, we better call Paul. We better call Saul and name him Paul. And when God chose to reveal his son to Paul, Paul was sending up the most negative signals that have ever come from a human being toward God. It was murder toward his son, Jesus Christ. It was as the very poetic way of putting it in Acts 9, 1, he was breathing out. So you have the whole idea of something proceeding from the mainspring of his actions, the mainspring of his thinking, his cognition, his intention was slaughterings of the people called Christians. So I have to rethink my whole idea of what, what it means for is God searching the human race to find positive signals. That's what the false teacher's gospel says. But Paul answers with, there is none that seeks God. The false teacher's gospel said, for those who seek glory and immortality, which are names for God, eternal life. And for those who are selfish and self-seeking, wrath. Now, there's a case in the Unchained Gospel, another controversial part of it. God has no plans for violent wrath against humanity for the eschatological future. His wrath is directed toward the two powers that have reigned in history until Christ and his death, and that's sin and death. God's wrath or his violent retribution is directed toward sin as a power and death as a kind of personified power. So there is a moment of wrath, as Psalm 30 says. Psalm 30 says that his wrath abides for a moment. 
but his everlasting kindness, his kesed, his mercy, his compassion endures forever. As Psalm 136, Dave and I were just talking about, Psalm 136, 26 times, they have that refrain at the end of each verse, his mercy endures forever. And we know the climactic verse of Romans in Romans 11.32 that God has imprisoned all humankind in disobedience so that he might have mercy on all. Mercy is extended toward the disobedient. As by the disobedience of one man, Adam, the all are condemned. So by the obedience of the one man, Christ, all will be justified as in Adam all die. So all will be made alive in Christ. This is what I would call the immensity of our great salvation, the immensity of it. But when you get into Romans chapter six and Paul asks, asks the question, does the immensity of this grace cause us to say, let us go out and continue sinning that grace may abound And he says, of course not. And then what he does is he brings in the immediacy of this salvation into what we would call a Christian living, a present Christian existence in which the life of the coming age begins to be experienced to the degree that we participate in Christ and participate with the Holy Spirit in the hope of glory. This is the gospel unchained justification then is not a forensic or legal thing that happens when you believe and therefore meet the criteria. There is no criteria. There is no criteria. It's unconditional. There is no stipulation. This gospel is unconditional. It is not a contractual arrangement of a bilateral contract. It is a covenantal arrangement unilaterally on the part of God for the law came through Moses and grace and truth, which is the fulfillment of covenant fidelity came through Jesus Christ. He's the personification of the covenant fidelity required of humankind. He is the faithful one. He is the righteous one. And so righteousness is not a matter of divine justice. And that's the gospel that we once, I once held to, a gospel where the forefront of God's attribute is justice. And now we know that the forefront of God's attributes and the sum total of all his attributes is love. For God is love. And God demonstrated this love in that while we were yet hostile to the very grace and kindness of God demonstrated at the cross, Christ died. That's the love of God. And so the first four chapters of Romans is a tricky matter, and I think that's one of the reasons why some people find Paul difficult. And so a lot of the original scholars of the 20th century, some of the big-time heavyweights in academia, concluded that Paul had to be confused because it's hard to see how one man could say, if you continue in goodness and righteousness and the pursuit of piety and glory, you'll receive eternal life. And on the other hand, say there's none that seeketh God. There's not even one. 
And so they said Paul was confused. Paul wasn't confused. Paul was deliberately setting up the gospel of this false teacher that we've been explaining now for 19 hours or 18 hours and therefore demolishing this gospel. His strategy is found in 2 Corinthians 2, 4 and 5. The weapons of our warfare are mighty through the pulling down of arguments or strongholds against the knowledge of God. That's what he's doing in Romans. The weapons of our warfare are mighty. He is pulling down a totally contradictory gospel in which human deserving is a facet, contract between God and man having human stipulations is in it, rationalistic man with a capacity for righteousness is in it, and Paul blows this gospel all to hell, thankfully. That's what my assignment is, I think, from the Lord in 2017, is to unchain the unchained gospel. Now, one of the words that really shows the distinction of these two gospels, in fact, of all the words used in the Greek text of Romans, this might be the single most definitive word that shows the difference between the two gospels, Paul's and this false teacher. We know that in Romans 1, 18 to 32, Paul's voice isn't being spoken. Paul isn't speaking there. Paul is blocking out the speech of this false teacher who could very well be the thorn in Paul's flesh because Paul called it a messenger of Satan. Everywhere he went, this other teacher followed. Galatians is very obvious. Romans, he's very obvious. In 2 Corinthians, there's the super apostles that Paul calls pseudo apostles. So Paul says this is how he would start his sermons. And in the middle of it, he has three references to paradidomy. Alleging themselves, 122, he says, alleging themselves to be wise. He's speaking now of the pagans. This is not Paul. This is the teacher. This is the proponent of another gospel. And this other gospel assumes that we in our unsaved state can realize how bad off we are. And you can't. That's the whole point of being in the unsaved state. You can't recognize the state you're in. That, that the state of being outside of Christ and its dire consequences, its direness, its, its separation from God, can't even be recognized until you're in Christ and see it retrospectively. But here, this guy, he's saying, well, there is a natural theology, and you look into the cosmos, and by your contemplation of the cosmos, you pass the first part of the test. You rationalize that God has... Not only does he have immortality and incorruptibility and omnipotence, but he has an ethical code. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was looking up in the sky without having any idea of Christ, I never assumed by looking into the sky and contemplating the cosmos that God had an ethics by which, for example, he prefers heterosexuality over homosexuality. Now, if you can tell that by contemplating the cosmos, more power to you. Look at where verse 22, alleging themselves to be wise. This is the typically condemning attitude of this false teacher. They were made foolish, having exchanged the glory and 
incorruptibility of God for the likeness and image of corruptible man and of birds, quadrupeds, and reptiles. Now, here's God in his retributive justice already. Therefore, God gave them up. Therefore, God gave them up. Guess what word that is? Paradidomi. God gave them up. And that is one of the meanings of the word. And in context, it means that. To the cravings of their hearts, to immorality, to the mutual dishonoring of their bodies, since indeed they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, to worship and serve the creation instead of the creator who is praised for the ages. Amen. Again, in verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up. He's talking about the people that Paul is going to be talking about, the Gentiles, the pagans, whom Paul is going to say some remarkable things about them that are totally contrary to this. But the preacher, the teacher rather, says, for this reason God gave them up. Para didomi, again. You see, already God is proceeding forth as a judge in a retributive way. He exercises his judgment in retribution toward mankind because mankind deserves this retribution, according to this teacher. Verse 26, then, for this reason, for the second time, God gave them up to ignoble passions, whereby their females exchange natural relations for deviant ones. Similarly, Males gave up the natural relations with females, having been inflamed by their desire for one another. Males with males performing disgraceful acts and getting paid back the necessary reward for their error. Now, there is in the Bible, in the Jewish scriptures, there is a revelation of what God considers to be ethical. But this teacher assumes that the pagans ought to know that by a contemplation of the cosmos. And because they don't pass that test, which can only be known the distinction between homosexuality and heterosexuality and heterosexual sexual immorality and homosexual sexual immorality, and there's immorality on both, that can't even be known to people unless it's known through the written code or the codex of the Mosaic Law. And the Mosaic Law, under Judaism, this should be understood. Judaism never proposed the fulfillment of the law for salvation. Never. The Old Testament scriptures never proposed it. No covenant of the law ever proposed, do this and you'll have salvation. But the law was given as a kind of, once you're in the covenant, this is how you are faithful to the covenant. It was only a group of pious Jews led by this teacher who assumed that following the law would lead to salvation. That was never even the proponent. That wasn't ever one of the tenets of true Judaism. So true Judaism, Judaism has taken a bad shot from the wrong distinction, the wrong interpretation of the gospel which ends up being a racist interpretation. It becomes an anti-Semitic interpretation, and it becomes the rationale of Nazis and supremacists of all kinds of race. It's a false doctrine. 
And this guy is a proponent of it. Paul is not speaking against the Jew anywhere in Romans. He's speaking against a Jew who is apparently a Jewish Christian who has another gospel. You'll never notice anything here about Christ in his speech either. There's no Christocentricity. It's anthropocentric. It's not Christocentric. And... Something terrible has come out of this from Western culture, which we're going to combat in the coming year. And so in verse 28, and just as they rejected having God in their knowledge, God gave them up, paradidomi, to a worthless mind to do that which is improper. All that I just read in Romans 1, to 28 is the teacher. He was originally called that by Lou Martin, M-A-R-T-Y-N, who did a magnificent study of Galatians. He called him the teacher. Paul confronted a teacher there. Paul says, I don't care what his reputation is. He shall bear his judgment. And he's speaking against a teacher who brought another gospel. And Paul said, it's not a gospel at all because it doesn't deserve the title good news. It doesn't deserve the descriptive moniker good news. It's not a gospel. Paul's gospel is an unchained gospel that's Christocentric, which no stipulations are put upon mankind for the appropriation of salvation, including faith, including belief of the right facts, including any, there was no stipulation. That's the controversial part, but I'm prepared, I'm armed, I'm armed for bear on this one. And this is another thing that's my assignment for the coming year. So apparently, according to this, and I'm being sarcastic, rational and self-interested mankind who has the rational capacity, evidently, and he doesn't, is supposed to deduce moral ethics from natural theology. And because he doesn't pass that test, the pagans didn't pass it, God hands them over and says, okay, do things that are immoral, do things that are stupid, here's a stupid mind, and I'm going to do all this to you because you... Didn't send up positive signals when you looked at creation. Evidently, mankind is supposed to deduce from the contemplation of the cosmos that God prefers heterosexuality over homosexuality. Of course, I'm speaking ironically. God's preference over these things and God's distinction of these things can be found in the written codes of the scripture. It can be found in the Old and the New Testament. But it cannot be deduced from a contemplation of the cosmos. That means that would mean that man is rationalistic and self-interested, and he's going to do what he can do to appropriate salvation. And nothing could be further from the truth. So here's when Paul comes in. When he begins to kick in his unchained gospel, which is Romans 5 through 8, and that's going to be astonishing when we start to get in. I might get into that before You think I will. In other words, I'm not going to go all the way up there, and then I might start and jump into Romans 5 through 8 by as early as Sunday. Who knows? But notice what Paul says. The word paradidomy is used by him. He's speaking in Romans 4.25. He's talking about Jesus there. And he says, he, Jesus, was delivered up. He, Jesus, was paradidomi, handed over. Is there a distinction here, a radical distinction 
God gave up and handed over the pagans to judgment. Or does it say here, Paul's beginning to say, now let me show you the gospel unchained. He lays down the gauntlet right in Romans 2, 1, 2 through 4. He breaches epistolary etiquette. And he says, this is the gospel of God that's all about Perry, his son. It's all about his son. It's about his son who was born according to the flesh of the seed of David. And therefore, he is the royal Messiah who is enthroned forever, whom God raised from the dead and designated to be the son of God by resurrecting him from the dead. That's Paul's gospel. It's all about his son. It's all about Jesus. It's all about the faithful one, Jesus Christ. It's all about justification or a divine rescue based on Christ's faithfulness, not man's faith. And in Romans 1.16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power for salvation. And then he says to everyone who has faith, what does that mean? It means that when God gives faith to someone after he's pleased to reveal his son to them, one thing that faith does is it's able to be retrospective and look back and say, wow, the gospel is the power of salvation. You don't know that until you're in and you look back. So this is the power of salvation to or in the view of Everyone that has faith, whether the Jew or the Gentile, the teacher would say to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But Paul will ask him, ask him later, is God a God only of the Jews and not of the Gentiles, not of the pagans? And the teacher will say, well, yeah, so the pagans, his voice is very low there. You can pick up the the cues in Romans 327, 326 and following. And uh, actually, it's 328 and following into 30. And then he admits, yes, God is God of the Gentiles also. And then he says, but, but what? by what law? By a law of works? And Paul says, no way, but by a Torah of faithfulness. Messiah's faithfulness. That's coming up. Look what Paul says. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised up for our justification. Again, justification is one of the dikaiao groups, and it means our rescue, our deliverance, because the righteousness of God is the act of the king in rescuing his people. It's the right thing for the king to do. The king is also right in judging the enemies of his people, which is sin and death itself, and the powers that hold sway over his people. So he, Jesus, was handed over or delivered up for our trespasses and raised up for our deliverance and liberation and transformation. Rescue is the word. It's deliverance. Please note, as we mentioned on Christmas, Jesus didn't die to save us from God, from an angry God, but from our sins. You shall call his name Yeshua because he will save his people from their sins and to rescue us, not from eternal hell, 
but from this present evil age in Galatians 1.4. And that deliverance or that rescue includes being rescued from a false gospel of human deserving. And that deserving goes both ways. Romans 5.1. Therefore, being, let's use that word properly now, dikaio, rescued, ek pistios, by faith? No. Go back to Romans 1.17, where ek pistios is used twice, with the primary emphasis on the fidelity of the Messiah, who is the righteous one. A Christocentric interpretation of Paul's gospel in Romans 1.17 identifies this righteous one not as anybody who has faith and therefore appropriates salvation or lives as a result of believing. This righteous one is Christ himself. When Jesus read from all the prophets, didn't he say, these are all about me? The Old Testament has the primary role of attestation, of testimony of the Messiah. And so therefore, my righteous one shall live by his faithfulness. And in it, the gospel, which Paul is not ashamed of, in it, the saving act of God in Christ, his righteousness, which is immense and immediate to those who are in, from faithfulness, that's Christ, to faithfulness. For the scripture says in Habakkuk 2.4, the primary Old Testament prophetic verse in Romans, the righteous one shall live. The righteous one is Christ. He shall live by resurrection because of his faithfulness, his obedience to the death of the cross, his obedience to the Father, his faithful obedience to the Father. So we are justified or rescued unconditionally as a result of God's unrestricted love and limitless benevolence. We are rescued by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We're not justified by our faith or our assent to the proper facts. There is no condition. As Romans 5.1 begins, therefore being delivered, rescued by faithfulness. That's the fidelity of the Messiah, the righteous one. Jesus is called the righteous one in Acts 7.52. 2214, 1 Peter 3.18, 1 John 2.1, 1 Peter 3.18 says that he died, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Not save us from God, but bring us to God. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. If you've seen me in a self-sacrificial act of dying on a cross, you've seen my Father. In a self-giving, saving act. As 1 John 2.1 says, in seemingly contrasting what the confessional piety of 1 John 1.6-10 seems to recommend, there is a level of Christian piety that's confessional. The Christian is constantly confessing sins. They're very sin-conscious, in fact. Their conscience is polluted, that's why. And so their whole life is made up of 
acknowledging sin, and then they think they're by acknowledging sin, all of a sudden they're spiritual again, and they're not. And so John says in 1 John 2, 1, but I write to you, I'm writing to you that you sin not, but if any man sins, let him know that he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is the propitiation for our sins. Why do I need my sins forgiven if my sins are forgiven? Why if believing, why if God slam dunks me into Christ and then gives me the gift of faith, which is my testimony. He slammed me into Christ and then gave me faith. Why then in Ephesians 1, 7, does that say that by the blood of his redemption, we receive the forgiveness of sins? Then why do I need to have the forgiveness of sins when I have the forgiveness of sins? I'm just putting this to you as a challenge. I'm throwing down a gauntlet here. I'm writing these things to you that you might not sin. That is, you might live the Christian existence of faith, hope, and love. And if anyone does sin, let him know that he has an advocate with the Father, even Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. Not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. And what does he tell his children? The youngest people in his congregation, the old man. What's he say? John the old man, the presbyteros. He says, I write unto you children to let you know that your sins are forgiven. I'm writing to you, children, to let you know that your sins are forgiven. I'm writing to you, young men. There are some young men in this ministry I could write to and say, because you've overcome the wicked one. We're going to overcome the wicked one in 2017 by overcoming the wicked one's gospel, which is a gospel that the Western culture has been believing since the Reformation and since before the Reformation in late medieval theology in Western culture. I write unto you, young men, because you're mighty in the word and you've overcome the wicked. When I'm writing to you, fathers, those of you who are mature in the faith, because you have known him who is from the beginning. John does this kind of a similar thing here. He's against somebody who's saying that Jesus Christ didn't come in the flesh. He's against a false teacher all through 1 John. So we have the pattern. It's not just new to Paul. It's not just only in Paul. So Paul says, the righteous one, which is Christ, who, by the way, embodies all human beings as the son of man, shall live because of his faithfulness. His faithfulness is also known as his obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion in Philippians 2.8. It's also known by the common, simple word, his blood, in Romans 5, 9, compared with Colossians 1, 20, by the peace that was made through the blood of the cross of the Son of God's love. He reconciles everything in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, from thrones and dominions on down. So in Romans 1.17, the faithfulness of the righteous one results in resurrection. So in Romans 4.25, when it says that God handed him over for our trespasses and raised him up for our deliverance, he's talking about all mankind there. But he's talking about a gospel 
that is not known until God is pleased to reveal his son to you. When are people saved? When they decide for Jesus? No. Jesus already decided for you. God already made the decision for you. He made an unstoppable determination, according to Ephesians 1, 9 through 11, to save the human race and to summarize everything in Christ. You can't do anything about that. So when do people actually get into Christ, cross that line, when God is pleased to reveal his son to them? Well, then the other gospel says that's only when people send up positive signals, when they demonstrate a kind of obedience through contemplation of the cosmos and recognizing God. No, that's what the false teacher says. And Paul puts the lie to that whole idea because, again, when God called Saul and changed his name to Paul, he said, we better call Paul so that we can show in Paul an example of when we decide to reveal the Son, it has nothing to do with the deserving of mankind. Paul was in the act of the worst kind of signals that you can send to God. I'm out to kill your son and his people. That's when God was pleased to reveal his son to Paul. So the whole idea of, well, no, you get in first, you try to obey the law, even if you're a pagan. And people find out they can't obey the law, so they can't get saved by the law, so they get anxious. They are courting hell. And the preacher will tell them that there is a hell and it's eternal and there's no relief and most people are going there and so are you. And so they come to a place of despair and then you find out much to your delight that God lowered the bar and he said, all you got to do is believe, but it's still something. It's still something. Paul's gospel says you are delivered, rescued unconditionally through the faithfulness of another by the righteous act of God, the saving act of God in Christ, which is so immense that it takes in all of creation in Romans eight nineteen to 23. It becomes God being all in all in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28. The immensity of it is staggering and awe-inspiring. We saw the immensity of it In the study of Revelation, we're about to see the immediacy of it in the study of Paul, that that salvation so immense comes right up close and personal to you and lets you experience, not fully by any means, but in an inaugurated way, the life of the coming age. And only by experiencing that life of the coming age and by participating in Christ's own perseverance and faithfulness. Can you endure the sufferings of Christ and while enduring them, be eminently grateful and boast of the hope of the glory of God? So what was immense to us still will be immense, but it's going to become immediate. And it will do away with a life of merely confessional piety and ritual piety and all the stuff that is American Pelagianism, which is a cooperation of human effort with God's sort of being kind to us. This is an all about his son gospel. So in Romans 4.25, the death of the righteous one, Paul says, if God did some handing over, all right, he did some paradidomy, all right, he handed his son over 
for our sins. That's where we begin with Paul's gospel. And then again, look at Romans 8. We'll see it again. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. If God is for us, who is against us? And he could, he could actually say here, who is against us? Who is going to be successful against us? This other teacher, I'm anticipating his arrival in Rome, and he's against you. He's against the pagans. It's very scandalous that Paul has received a gospel to the uncircumcision, the pagans. Gentiles is too weak of a term. If you have a Jewish friend and he calls you a goy, he's calling you a pagan. And it's scandalous that Paul would have a gospel to the goyim. If God is for us, who is against us? He who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up. Paradidomi. Gave him over. Gave him up. There's the paradidomi. The teacher says he gives up the pagans. Because they failed the test of proper cosmic contemplation. I gave you a test. You looked into the stars. You didn't, you didn't deduce from that that I'm the incorruptible and immortal God. So I'm going to hand you over to all this idolatry and this terrible stuff that's self-destructive. No, Paul says God gave his son over. And I think it says on behalf of us all here, Hooper Pantone, last word in Revelation, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with Pantone. He gave him over on behalf of us all. So, he who didn't spare his own son, oh, wait a minute, Paul, are you telling us now that the gospel really is all about God's son? So who receives the paradidomi? God's son. For who? For all. How shall he not freely give us everything Tapanta there means the renewed universe. How shall he not now not freely give us everything together with him? Verse 33, who brings a charge against God's elect? This is actually two questions in the rhetorical strategy of Paul. He says, who brings a charge against God's elect? And then he says, God who justifies well, what kind of people does God justify? Oh, let's see. The ungodly in Romans 4, 5. The ungodly. So who brings a charge against God's elect? God who justifies, that is, who rescues. Verse 34, who is he who condemns? Christ Jesus who died, that is, for our sins, but even more has been raised from the dead, And even going beyond that also intercedes for us. So God gave his son over on behalf of us all. Sounds a little more. Well, let's just say it sounds radically distinct from God handed over the pagans for failing the test of the contemplation of the cosmos. So probably no other single word other than paradidomy highlights the contrast between the two Gospels in Romans. Romans is a dialectic of absolute contradictories. 
It is the pulling down and the total demolition, the utter elimination and annihilation of a gospel that is rationalistic, individualistic, of human deserving, anthropocentric, contractual, and forensic. Paul's gospel is the mystery. It's called the mystery. And it's God's intention to summarize everything in Messiah Jesus unconditionally. I like this word in closing in Galatians 1.4. Where it says, Christ gave himself for us to deliver us from this present evil age. Or Galatians 2.20. I was crucified with Messiah. Nevertheless, I live, and yet it's not I, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live, in this flesh, right now, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God, who, para didomi, gave himself up for me. He loved me and gave himself up for me. I don't frustrate the unconditional grace of God. He went on to say, but then Paul, and this is where true discipleship comes in. Bonhoeffer knew about true discipleship. Lou Ross recently sent me, shot me a text and I, I've used it recently. Bonhoeffer said in the body of Jesus Christ, God is united with humanity. All of humanity is accepted by God. And the world is reconciled with God. In the body of Jesus Christ, God took upon himself the sin of the whole world and bore it. There is no part of the world, be it ever forlorn and never so godless, which is not accepted by God and reconciled with God in Jesus Christ. Whoever looks on the body of Jesus Christ in faith can no longer speak of the world as if it were separated from Christ. He's right. The only time we can look at the world this way is from inside Christ. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. And he has committed to us this word of reconciliation, this message of reconciliation. For he who knew no sin became sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We don't receive this grace in vain, Paul went on to say. And then you get a couple of shocking things that will come up, like in, Galatians, in, in Romans 6, 7, when it says, He that has died to sin is no longer held by sin. And he that has died to sin is again Christ himself. And we'll see that coming up. But Paul said this word paradidomi in a different context in 2 Corinthians 4, 11. For you see, he says, we who live are always given over, handed over, paradidomy to death because of Jesus. So that Jesus' life may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. In Romans six seventeen, this is true for Tetelestai Church. 
We have been given over and we are being given over now, handed over. Paradidomi, Romans 6, 17. We are being handed over. God's doing it. We are being handed over, says Romans 6, 17, to a certain form of teaching, which unlike that of the notorious teacher, the teacher to which we are being, the teaching to which we are being handed over, includes the knowledge of our co-crucifixion with Christ as well as our co-resurrection with him, our co-ascension with him, and our co-sitting together with him in the heavenlies. And this is where discipleship comes in. Believers, especially the apostles, are the tip of the spear as participants in the fidelity of Messiah, the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. He is not a God of retributive justice, but the God of love and peace, as 2 Corinthians 13, 11 says. The God who is love, as 1 John 4, 8 says, and who gave his only son to be a propitiation for us that we may live through him. Who's we who may live through him? If not ultimately all for in Adam all die, but in Christ all will be made alive. For if one died for all, then all died. And discipleship simply means that we no longer live to ourselves by ourselves with our own resources, but we live unto him who whom God raised from the dead. This is where discipleship comes in. And so there's a profound emphasis in this word dikaiao and dikaiosune. Not on justice, and therefore justification is not a forensic, meaning a legal imputation of a righteousness that's really a legal fiction. It's not really ours, but God gives it to us, and so we're not righteous, but we are. It's a legal fiction. That's not what Paul is saying. The act of God in Christ is an immense saving act that swept all of humanity into its entire embrace and all creation into its embrace. You say, when then do people get saved? When I browbeat them, when I convince them, when I persuade them, when I argue with them to the point of being blue in the face? No, when God is pleased to reveal his son to them. I was witness to and... It had the gospel explained to me rationally very clearly at the University of Vermont, but God revealed his son to me when he was pleased to reveal his son to me. And in my testimony, God placed me in Christ, and I was astonished, and then he said, have faith, and he gave me faith after salvation. And it wasn't until 45 years later, in January 23rd of 1972 is when this happened. It's only now that I'm actually coming into the knowledge of what that means, That God unconditionally placed me in his son and chose to reveal his son to me on that day and then said, have a deep and abiding faith, son. It's a gift to you, given to you after you're being sealed with the Holy Spirit into Christ. You have the privilege now of participation in the faithfulness of the son of God. You now have the right to live by the faithfulness of the son of God who loved you. And he will reproduce that same love in you toward others. 
that same benevolence you'll begin to have toward others. You'll begin to actually say, as many of you have written to me and said, now I, I'm compassionate now. And someone recently wrote, I want to work in a soup kitchen. Soup kitchen. And it was because all of a sudden they loved. And this is the fruit of this message. We live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. It's all about a faith working by love. It's all about beginning to see people with the kind of benevolence that is really God looking through your eyes and you looking through his. And so the righteousness of God, his saving act, is revealed in it, the gospel, apocalypto. It is apocalyptically revealed from faithfulness to faithfulness. It's revealed in the faithfulness of the Son of God as that faithfulness begins to be our participation in his faithfulness. And so God is pleased to reveal his Son to everybody. Every eye will eventually see him. Every eye will see him. Every tongue will acknowledge joyfully, publicly, voluntarily, and freely that Jesus is Yahweh of the Old Testament. Every knee will publicly gladly genuflect to the glory of God the Father. God is pleased to reveal his Son to everyone. Blessed are you if now in this life he has revealed his Son to you because you are part of a community that is immensely privileged to know, even though through a glass darkly, that which the love of God is going to do for all of creation. Everyone will eventually know and see face-to-face this awesome knowledge. We don't see it yet face-to-face, but we see it obscurely as in a mirror. And that's why we're here, to see it more clearly. My whole job this year is to give you more of a cognitive clarification on this true gospel because in the measure that you know it is the measure that you're liberated the measure that you're liberated is the measure that you become an effective ambassador of Christ to this world I believe that we're on the precipice of a vast we're in the midst of a vast crisis in western culture that has construed the gospel of Paul into something that it isn't And it's called, and we're going to see it, American Pelagianism, European Pelagianism. And this is about to come down now. This is about to be pulled down now. The gospel is going to be unchained, and with it, thousands at first, then millions, then tens of millions of people are going to be set free. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and the breakout of the imprisonment of the captives. This is the year of the breakout of the unchained gospel. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to bring forth in a somewhat scattered fashion, but in a fashion that you can bring to clarity to us. May we distinguish this gospel. May we distinguish the gospel that is all about your son from a gospel that has passed into the churches since the Reformation and even before that has in fact corrupted the pure 
grace of God, the unconditional kindness of God, and has presented to Western culture a God of retributive justice rather than unlimited benevolence. And those who accept this God become judgmental and have a gospel that is judgmental. But those who accept and understand this true gospel begin to take on the benevolence, the kindness, the beneficence of the God of all grace. We thank you for this in Christ's name.